Hi. <laughs> Pleasant seeing you here. Oh, fancy seeing you here. Fancy. This is Two Girls, One Ghost. Two Girls, One Ghost. We are your ghostesses. That's Corinne. Hi. And I'm Sabrina. And I just had a spiritual experience in Arizona. Uh, let's hear it because I was tracking your location thinking yeah. you were going to disappear. So, and I think you thought you were going to disappear. Uh, yeah, too. <laughs> I texted you and told you what hike we're going on just so you knew. So Nick and I drove, we did a road trip out to Sedona, Arizona, hoping for warm weather because I had just spent three weeks in New York and shivered for the whole entire time. And my bones needed some warmth. But well, I didn't know because I looked at the weather, but we got snow in Sedona. So it was like 32 degrees and snowing. Wow. But anyway, on Sunday, we like went hiking and it was wonderful and beautiful. And I was reading about Sedona and all these hikes and there are these vortexes and Sedona is known for like all the energy vortexes and like there's like masculine and female energy and vortexes there and people go and do meditation and all this stuff, which I like didn't really look a ton into beforehand. But anyway, we were going to do a vortex hike and I texted Corinne in case we disappear because there are a lot of people who <laughs> miss time or like lose time in Sedona yeah. when they're hiking or get lost. And And also I think we had just done the episode where you talked about people disappearing in like in some hiking area what was it it was the bennington triangle yeah in Vermont. exactly and so mm -hmm. i was like i can't be that person there was a point where nick had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the hike and we had basically just started he's like i'm gonna go back to the bathroom you can wait here and i was like no 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 no, no. i know what happens i am Hell coming no. with you no you need to be like holding hands <laughs> when you're in a place like that you have to be attached but we we got up to the top of that hike and um, I'm totally blanking on the name. I think it was like Dunyan or something like that, Canyon Hike. But we got up to the top of it and we're sitting up there and it was so peaceful. And wow. the energy at the top of that one was like a very balancing energy. And even Nick said to me, like, I felt very balanced. I was like, whoa. <gasps> oh, I just got chills. I when know. Nick believes in something, I'm like, ooh. <laughs> I know. Me too. I know. I feel like I toned down my belief a little bit when I'm around him because I like, you know, don't want to like be too much but when he gets excited about it and feels it i'm like oh me too and then i get i let all my free flags fly you trust your instinct a little bit more too right yes yes yeah because sometimes it's hard to differentiate what you want to happen versus yeah, what's actually happening exactly but if someone else validates it then it's like wow okay that really did happen yes so then as i was posting pictures the amount of people, the amount of you, the listeners who reached out to me on Instagram and were like, you have to go to Jerome. It's only like 45 minutes away from Sedona. Go, go, go. And I was so glad that we drove because on our way home on Monday, we went. We went to Jerome, which is a famous ghost town. I feel like we've talked about it and, and I could have sworn we did an episode about it. Maybe it's a glitch in the matrix, but it probably also likely was. Just did we not? Fact. We haven't. Okay, because when you said you were going to Jerome, I also thought we did an episode on it. I know, but I think we probably both have seen it in our search for mm. other stories. And probably listeners, listener stories. Yeah, totally. I have my little pamphlet. Oh, look at that. But it was this like roaring copper mining town and had 15,000 people living there. And then all of a sudden it went down to like zero residents. But now people actually live there and there's 400 people, 400 around there, people who live in Jerome. Oh my gosh. And it's like a mile above sea level in the middle of like the mountains in Arizona. And it's so cute. It was so busy. I was shook. There's like tons of wineries and like cute little shops. I went to, into one that was called, oh shoot. Why am I blanking? <gasps> I have a picture of it. 
400 people. Here's my question. It, how far? Well, I guess you said only 45 minutes from Sedona. Because I, w- yeah. I was trying to picture like 400 people. Is this 400 people in the middle of nowhere? But not really, because you can get other places. And I mean, it's not middle of nowhere. It's by another big town that I feel like a lot more people are, are likely to live in. Oh, Ghost Town Girl was the name of the store. Ghost Town Girl. I mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And this woman who... Like had visited when she was a child. Her mom like mm-hmm. lived there, was like an artist and retired there. And her mom just, you know, fully retired and stopped owning the shop. So she went and moved to Jerome to like take over the store and sells her mom's like artwork and everything. It was so cool. That's so awesome. Yeah. But it it's like such a cool there's so much history and so many ghosts. I didn't go to the hotel that's supposed to be famous for all the ghosts, just because it was a little bit harder to get to and not really on our way. But we walked around the town. We saw like the old jail cells. And there's a bunch of just like in the middle of the town and there's all these fully structured buildings. There will just be like one building. That is like dilapidated and walls crumbling and you could see the (gasps) full interior. Like there was this one place that used to be a hotel and was a bank at a point. And there's just like a toilet down at the bottom and like an outhouse almost. That's so cool. Yeah. I love that. And and then when we went into the stores, we asked all the like the owners about their ghost stories. And at Ghost Town Girl, the woman was like, I haven't seen them, but my mother swears there's a ghost in this store that likes to just like wander around and she keeps, she'd always see these like white little orbs passing by in her periphery. And then the woman in this bookstore we went to was like, well, I never seen him, but I had someone come in here and talk to the ghost because I wanted to know why all of my books were being thrown off the shelves. And apparently they found out his name is Kevin and he kept throwing books off the shelves because his photo used to be up on the wall where those specific books were being thrown. (laughs) And he was jealous. He wanted his photo back up on the wall. It was a little bit of vanity, a little bit of a need for recognition. Yeah, I love that. It was just like, I know. Why am I not up here anymore? So it was very, very cool. Oh, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I feel like you need to cover this now in a future episode, I know. like full on. I will. It's funny. The woman at the bookstore almost told me I'm buying a book about it. Maybe I could still order it. Yeah. I'm very curious too about the vortexes back in mm-hmm. Sedona. Were there any, was it just Sedona or was it also Jerome? I don't think Jerome's known for vortexes, but Arizona, I mean, has so like superstition mountains are in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Aliens. Yeah, you covered that one early on. I still think about that one yeah. all the time. It really freaked me out. I feel like so, just Arizona in general has so much freaky shit happening that it's, yeah. you know, possible there are vortexes everywhere. Oh my gosh. You're reminding me right now of, so this past week was rough. Selfishly, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about myself and how hard it was on <laughs> me to have you possibly disappearing in a vortex. (laughs) And then our friend Nikita, who is one of the co-hosts of the Faddish podcast, her and her boyfriend were without cell service in Death Valley. Love Death Valley. Yeah, it's well, I'm not going to go there because the name is scary. And it's it's not scary at all. It's so cool. She said that it. But then I was watching all of these like National Geographic, Travel Channel, Smithsonian museum uh youtube videos on it and it's the harshest place in the world and it's like the hottest and driest and they also have this one part she took a picture that is at the lowest Mm -hmm. it's at the lowest sea level in the in the continent Mm -hmm. i don't know she was talking about how great it was but then she started telling me beyond just just the uh amount of near-death experiences and injuries you can have there she was telling me that no one was around they were in like 
the backcountry trying to, you know, be really humbled by nature, but they would hear whispers and people talking and laughing, but there would be absolutely no one. Yeah, she just texted me and she was like, "Ooh, Death Valley's got some ghosts. And I was like, I believe it. Please elaborate. (laughs) It's part of like there when I went there with my family many years ago, there's like old, old mining towns in that area. And I mean, there's a lot of history there. It does feel like wild, wild west. Yeah, they're all ghost towns for the most part. Yeah. Yep. My goodness. Well, I'm glad Jerome has has a you can kind of have that juxtaposition of a small town with 400 people versus like these dilapidated old kind of mm-hmm. preserved ghost town vibes. <gasps> oh my I like God. That. I forgot. I, okay. One other thing the woman in the bookstore told us is that the local cemetery from like the beginning of Jerome past really only has the bodies of children who pa- passed away during that time because oh. a lot, there were a lot of people who, you know, from dysentery to the plagues or whatever was happening at the time, a lot of kids were dying and passing away. So they buried up in the the cemetery, but there were so many other people like adults dying from, you know, killing each other and from like mining accidents or who knows, you know, what other crazy things, truly the wild, wild west that they, and instead of putting them in cemeteries, because so many of them were dying, they had a grinder. (gasps) Oh my God. Oh my God, Sweeney Todd. It's so Sweeney Hell Todd. No. And I was like, I'm sorry. What? And she goes, Well, they had to get rid of the bodies. And she just said it with this like straight face. And I was like, Okay. Okay. Can, okay are there other ways? I think there are other ways before you just like meat grind a human. Well, that's what they did. That's freaking gross. Yeah. That's freaking gross. Oh my God. Screw ghost stories. That's what's going to haunt me for the rest of my life. I know. It's very Sweeney Todd. It's also very, like, I don't know, any of those, like, Final Destination, House of Wax style movie where there's, like, really awful, grotesque deaths and scenes mm-hmm. that are just, like, gory. And, oh, God. Is that what you think about while you go to sleep? Yes. I think my biggest fear is that sort of torture. Like, literally, my biggest fear. That's maybe not the most realistic because I hope to God this doesn't happen to me in my life is from, I think it was in House of Wax where the guy, I, <gasps> I should describe it. No, 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 oh. no. That one's the Achilles heel, heel yeah. one. Are you talking about that yeah, one? That's oh, that one's about. really bad. <laughs> no, I won't give too much detail because I know kids listen and also people drive and I don't want anyone to faint. But there's two cars involved and there's a person tied to each car in between. That's, oh, you get the gist. The stretch. Not good. Yeah. Hate it. Oh, you know what I just remembered? What? This is what I was going to tell you. Remember, I was like, oh, we haven't checked in on the Conjuring house in a long time. I wonder what's happening. Right. What's happening? Scrolling through TikTok (gasps) and the daughter of the people who own the Conjuring house has a TikTok. And she just like makes funny videos about the ghosts with the Raggedy Ann doll and shows the inside. Uh, I mean, I believe it. I believe it's legit. There's like videos of the house, but her name is Madison Heinsen. Wait, okay, send these to me because I need to watch. Are there any ghosts? Like, is there, are there paranormal encounters? Mm, I haven't scrolled through her entire page. I don't think so. I think it's kind of just like her telling stories of what have happened, oh. what has happened, and uh, she just like shows the inside of the house, which is really old and historic looking. That's cool. It doesn't look like there were too many updates. Like it's been quite preserved. Um, and yeah, it's more of like a like a comedy page like i think she maybe deals with with living in the conjuring house through some comedy well that that's probably the best way to deal with it yeah but i was like oh our phone listens or maybe the conjuring house is trying to find us (gasps) like we were looking for head man 
Oh, God. No, 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 no. I haven't seen him, so that's good. You just reminded me of him. Oh, God. <laughs> but we heard about him now over two weeks ago, so I think we're in the True. clear. We're in the clear. I don't I know about our listeners, God, though. If... We'll see. Yeah. We will pray for you, and yeah. we'll hope that you get some sleep tonight. Okay. <laughs> I hope your brains and ears are ready, because something we love to talk about. Love, love, love. Love. I mean, get your red string out, friends, because this is the conspiracy theory episode. <laughs> I immediately pictured it's always sunny and and what's his name charlie day with his red string and his maps like ah! eyes bulging Crazy. out of their heads that's us that's, that's us. us that it really is that's us every week but now we're just we're just making it official yeah i feel like we make up our own conspiracies and it's very rarely that we like openly research or discuss conspiracy theories that the world has True. created and so i don't know i really got into this one I was like, oh, I get why everyone thinks this. Yeah, I'm so excited to hear yours. <laughs> I chose to talk about the Illuminati. Ooh, ooh, TBT. Throw up your triangles, fam. Ayo. So, dollar bill. Dollar bill. When you think of the Illuminati, you probably think of power, celebrities and their fame, Jay-Z holding up his hands in the pyramid, Lindsay Lohan's- I was just about to say Beyonce. Tattoos, Beyonce, Gaga's videos, or the eye of the like on the pyramid on the back of the dollar bill, leading you to think that this goes so much deeper than we ever imagined, and that the Illuminati is controlling the world and is trying to create a dominant world totalitarian government and just take over, Right. For me, yes. I think of all of that, and I also think about how the how for years the Illuminati has been coming for Corinne and I. Yeah, I was just going <laughs> to say, let's not leave that part out. They've been DMing us on Instagram. They've been emailing us. I even looked at our email. We have like four emails from the Illuminati trying to bring us in, promising us we'd make millions of dollars, promising us fame and everything we could ever wish for. And Oftentimes, many misspelled words in those many, emails. Many, many, many. And you know what? A lot of people just target Sabrina. There are it's definitely, true. I'd say the majority of the emails are like, Sabrina, Dear Sabrina, would you like to join? Yeah. So it's not really, they don't want me. They want you. Well, okay. We've had people message us on Instagram on our public and it said both of us. So that's both of us. And I'm not joining without <laughs> you. So, well, I've got my own conspiracies, conspiracy theory know, groups so to what, join. What's one more? Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure if suddenly we blow up over this overnight, this episode, everyone's going to know we joined. <gasps> that is, oh my God. I hope so. I hope that'd be so cool. Cause it will be part that of the we conspiracy. join the Illuminati and no, then we, we don't join it, that we just become famous after this episode. <laughs> There's a conspiracy. And then everyone starts thinking yes. it's because we're part of the Illuminati, but we're not. <laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh, I can't even speak English anymore. I'm into that. <laughs> Let's pray. Praise be to our Illuminati father. Spot our triangles and our hidden Patreon videos. Oh, what if we were friends with Beyonce? Maybe we should join. Do we get front row access? I feel like probably not. <laughs> uh, anyway, we've pushed them off for years. We are not part of the Illuminati. Um, or so you think. Or so you think. But also, I think we probably run pyramid schemes better than they do. And we know how pyramid schemes work because we run one. <laughs> this podcast. This podcast. <laughs> when at the end, remember when we remind you that it's a pyramid scheme and you mm -hmm. need to tell other people? Mm -hmm. Transparency is key. It is key. Honestly. Okay. How do you spread your word if you're not transparent? <laughs> um and as tempting as it is to blindly join the Illuminati, I feel like when I was doing research about this, it was there was a lot of comparison to 
signing your name and like the devil's book and like giving him mm. your soul. Yeah. And I just, you know, I can't blindly do that stuff. I, I ask a lot of questions. So this is why I'm glad we I'm doing this. So I could do all the research and look at the facts and then decide, is the Illuminati really worth it? So that's why today I'm going to tell you the history of the Illuminati and what the conspiracies are and if said conspiracies hold any truth. One of the things that was like the most, well, the most shocking thing, because this is the history of it, is that the Illuminati was an actual real historical organization in the late 1700s. Like it was a real thing. Yeah. I did not know that. So the conspiracy stemmed from like, which totally makes sense because I feel like often conspiracies do stem from something that started and then was, you know, disband or, or you know, who knows what happened, but I feel like there's some truth in the beginnings of conspiracies. Um, Mm -hmm. So that just went to go to show how little I really knew about the Illuminati. This organization was called the Bavarian Illuminati. And again, I'm just going to preface this by saying that there's probably enough information to fill history textbooks about the Bavarian Illuminati and like the history of all of this. And then, you know, what was happening in the world at the time. So this is just kind of a scratch, a little itch of the surface. So you understand it. Adam Weishaupt, who was a German philosopher and law professor, resolved to spread the ideals of enlightenment and which were the pursuit of happiness, sovereignty and reason and the evidence of the senses and the primary resources of knowledge and advanced ideals such as liberty, progress, toleration, fraternity, constitutional government and separation of church and state. He had been silenced by the power of the church. And so he just really felt like he needed to end that corruption And on May 1st, 1776, Adam and four students formed the Covenant of Perfectibility, and they called themselves the Perfectibilists, which is a very hard word to say. Perfectibilists. Perfectibilists. Could never say it quick enough in conversation where it just rolled off the tongue. And interestingly enough, he agreed with us because in April of 1778, like two years after starting the organization, he changed the name to the Order of the Illuminati. And they took on the Owl of Minerva as their symbol, which is a symbol that, you know, if people see it now, they relate everything to the Illuminati and that's how they connect it Mm. to the conspiracy and everything. And there were two sides to the order. There were the ideals and then they had very strange rituals. So their ideals were fundamentally about enlightenment, which is promoting a worldview of rational thought and self-rule. They sought to infiltrate and upset institutions like the church and the monarchy Their chapters were meant to become schools of wisdom in which new ideas could be taught freely away from prying eyes of priests and public officials. So just as a little, like I read a little bit about what was happening in the the world at this time. And it was just very, he was a professor and he would try to bring in science based knowledge or or text into the school and the Jesuits that taught at his school, the priests that taught at his school would shut him down. And it was basically like, you have to teach Catholic based teachings and science isn't real, essentially. Okay. And I'm sure I will get at, I will be yelled at because there's probably so much more there, but. That's the gist. This that's isn't. the gist. This isn't a docu-series here. This is. Yes. Half an episode of exactly. Two Girls Talk. <laughs> you guys have been with us, hopefully for, well, I mean, some of you have been with us for three years at this point. I think you know what we are. So basically, they were just trying to he started this organization where people could get a better look at what was out there in the world and better information and learn in a space that was not controlled by people trying to push their own agendas. Mm -hmm. And which sounds great. Sounds nice. But their rituals were really bizarre. With the least bizarre starting first, we'll say they recruited members. And in order to recruit members, they would infiltrate other organizations 
and sow seeds of doubt with their members and then manipulate them and kind of force them to join the Illuminati. One of those groups that they infiltrated was the Freemasonry group, which is like another fraternal organization, kind of had the same ideals. Yeah, we've chatted about them before. Yeah. Yeah. And that will come into play a little bit later. But then these members all adopted pseudonyms to avoid identification. So there was a lot of paranoia involved with this. So this was a secret Mm -hmm. organization. And I think it was kept secret because they knew, you know, the outside world wanted to wanted society to look a specific way. So if they heard of this group meeting and talking and and forwarding ideas in a way that they wouldn't like, maybe mm-hmm. they'd be frowned upon. So everyone had pseudonyms and no one really knew who the real identities were. So that like, if I were in, in the original group, I wouldn't know that Ukraine were also in it because I would only know Bigfoot's girlfriend was in the group. <laughs> and I wouldn't know who Bigfoot's girlfriend was in real life. They didn't trust anyone outside of the organization. And they also did not trust anyone over the age of 30 because they believed that anyone older than 30 was believed to be too set in their ways. Hmm. I mean, at that point, you have a level of maturity, most likely that that you have a bit more reason behind your actions. I think, yeah, targeting someone younger, you have someone who's a little bit more malleable and someone who is a little more spontaneous, rebellious, perhaps wants to absorb something that they find a little dangerous and enticing. Yeah. I mean, this this part kind of reminds me a lot of the Nexium documentaries, just because mm. they're very specific <laughs> in who they targeted. So no one who was too set in their ways, they targeted or they, you know, they tried to recruit wealthy elite Christians of good character and they went out of their way to exclude those who practice paganism, Judaism, and they also did not include women, which is like, okay. Okay. The order had three grades or levels, again, similar to Nexium. They were novice, Minerval, and then the illuminated Minerval. And when recruited, the novice members were asked to write detailed reports on their lives and their character, including like all of the property that they owned, books, like anything that was of worth. And then they also were asked to write down the names of all their enemies. And then they were also asked to recruit new members. And only then, after recruiting new members and after two years of studying, were they actually eligible to graduate to the next level. Again. Okay, this is basically just a template out of the book of how to start a cult. Exactly. Yes. Upon reaching the Minerva level, there was like a very complex ceremony where the candidate was given secret signs and a password. And they learned all these spy tactics that they use. So basically, this is like James Bond meets Nexium in the 1700s because mm. they were acting like full on spies. They like, communicated in strange ways. They moved throughout the world in weird ways, which also sounds fun. It sounds really fun. But I think if you're surrounded by people who like wholeheartedly believe in that, you might start to co- like convince yourself of something that is not the actual reality that you live in. Right. Totally. Like I, I could see myself starting to really separate from who I truly am and from everyone around me because I'm so in this belief that life is different than how it actually is. Right. You get wrapped up in it. Yeah. Yeah. Like to an extent that you would need therapy. Yeah. I don't think this was like the only thing I will say is I don't think this was like all consuming in the way that Nexium and some other cults are where you like move in and you live with just the members of your group. Mm. I think this was like very, I don't know, like a club, a social club that you joined and it was just more secret. So it was like, it's like Greek life basically. It's not your whole life, but it's something you're a part of. You meet, you know, once in a while 
And you guys talking code. I don't know. Speaking of, did you know that there there were secret societies at LMU? I know. I was in one. You were? Mm-hmm. What the fuck? I didn't get invited. It wasn't that secret. I was in the Order of Omega. What did you have to do? Just have good grades. You guys didn't like have cloaks or sacrifice? Mm-mm. No. Good sandwiches from the cafeteria. <laughs> I mean, we were in Greek life. We were both in sororities. That was basically the oh. sacrifice and ritual. And Okay. I always felt like I was missing out, but now I guess. But you, you, you were part of it. We had, we had like Greek names that we went by in chapter. We wore robes oh. for initiation. Oh yeah. Here's the thing. I was, I was in charge of initiation one year and oh, I, I'm so sorry. I was like, that, no, here's, the, well, there's a whole group of girls who I think technically by the book are not actually a part of the, <laughs> technically a part of Greek life as they think they are. Because I was looking through that book and I was like, there are way too many rituals. Things are not making sense. I don't want to be here for three hours. Let's make this 45 minutes efficiency. And I cut that <gasps> you thing You cut things down. down. Oh, Green. yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, that's weird. That freaks me out. We're not doing that. Oh, but that's. <laughs> fun maybe maybe in your your chapter ours when i was initiated it was like oh well i can't talk about it secret but it was it was a a very special moment i felt like mine was not of nothing (laughs) of importance so i think yours must have been better or my experience was just bad and so i made it even worse for everybody else (laughs) in the future oh my gosh Okay, well, back to the Illuminati, which now I'm imagining to be just like my sorority in college. Um, (laughs) They loved their spy tactics. It was just a thing that they did, and it was strange, but, you know. And then there's also, I'll tell you in a little bit, but, like, I'll just tell you now. Why am I withholding information from you? Maybe I am a part of the Illuminati. (laughs) I'm I'm now making a conspiracy about myself. (laughs) (laughs) This is, we're spiraling. This is how easy it is. But so when the group disbanded, there were a bunch of writings found about the group and a lot of these like rituals came out. But I was, I looked everywhere. I even like bought a book and listened to the the, two hour book and I couldn't find the rituals. Like they like didn't go that in detail about it. So I found like one thing, which I'll tell in a minute, but yeah. So they said the rituals were really, really bizarre. And like what came out, came to light after they were disbanded was like shocking. But I, I, if someone wants to enlighten me with Illuminati information, please. Yeah. And also uh, shocking to who? Shocking to people that lived a hundred years ago or shocking to us? I don't know. There might be a difference there. Yeah, that's true. uh, Yeah, that's true. Anyway, so the Illuminati order grew to about 2,500 members in 10 years. But all the secrecy and all the hierarchies led to a lot of internal conflict and turmoil. And basically, after years of this tension within the group and power dynamics going awry, the order went into a decline. And then this cherry on top of all of that was the group was dismembered because in 1785, the Duke of Bavaria, whose name was Carl Theodore, banned secret societies, specifically calling out the Illuminati and other institutions like the Freemasons. And he instituted serious punishments for anyone who joined the organizations and for anyone who was caught participating in them. And so that's when all the group secrets were disclosed and published. And the only thing that I could find was that it was revealed that the organization had very thorough plans for world domination and (laughs) that they were planning. (laughs) Why did it immediately come to mind? I was just like, it's pinky in the brain. Like that's that's who started Illuminati. Wild domination. Plankton is in there too. 
Wow, I would love to be in an organization with plankton. <laughs> I know. It sounds fun. He just wants the secret recipe. The secret sauce. <laughs> For the patties. Or the cra- the Krabby Patty Krabby recipe. Krabby Patties. Um, and then there, they also, the thing, the, again, this is just what I found, was able to find, but that the Illuminati was planning to start recruiting women because, and this is a quote that I found that was written down by a member. It said, women are the best means of influencing man. They should be enrolled into the Illuminati and into their minds, put a hope that they might themselves in time be released from the tyranny of public opinion. I mean, yes, women have a lot of influence on everyone, but so Again, I don't know all the information of like the secrecy that came out, but most historians agree that this is when the Illuminati disappeared. It was disbanded because if they didn't and if they were caught, they would have been punished. And so people, most people believe that that was the end of the Illuminati. But in 1797, so like 10 years after they were forced to disband, the conspiracies really began. So there's this man who was a scientist from University of Edinburgh. His name was John Robinson. There was this French writer and a Jesuit priest um, whose name is Augustine Barul. And these two men were kind of like the face and the voice of the conspiracies in the beginning of conspiracies. They both separately were writing these, these very thorough novels and papers and articles and journals about how they believed the Illuminati went underground and were theorizing that the Illuminati order spread and was becoming more and more dangerous and reaching globally. So that instead of disbanding in 1785, they went underground. Augustine Barul, the Jesuit priest, wrote four volumes on how the Illuminati was still active, and he believed that it had gained 300,000 members in the 10 years that they were underground. And he truly believed that the Illuminati was behind the French Revolution and that they caused it, that they had radicalized the movement against the church and the state. And he linked the Illuminati to like all these other groups, the Assassins, the Knights Templar, a worldwide Zionist plot. Like it was very thorough to the point where like wow. he, he just... And again, I'm sure if I read these books and these these uh, volumes, I'd have more information. But he just had so much that he believed backed up these theories. And he and Robinson warned of sleeper cells that had planted themselves in the United States. And he, Barul, quoted... Um, As the plague flies on the wings of the wind, so do their triumphant legions infect America... The immensity of the ocean is but a feeble barrier against the universal conspiracy of the sect. And strangely enough, the writings spawned by these two men who were like conspiring and thinking that the Illuminati was spreading actually caused the fear of the Illuminati and information about the Illuminati to spread more quickly and more globally, reaching way beyond anywhere that that the group had ever managed to go or imagine them doing so it's so interesting that like these conspiracy ramblings births the movement or were they correct and that the illuminati illuminati had spread globally so it's this question of which came first the chicken or the egg i don't know or were those authors actually part of the illuminati and were tasked with doing this and pretending to be these other people to spread the word of the illuminati Maybe it's uh, well. Mm. You know what? It's an inside job. I actually okay. Let's let's make some conspiracies real quick. I do believe (laughs) that because it is said that this was the first time. So these two men who were writing these conspiracies, this they were the first ones to like 
out the names of the people who were in the Bavarian Illuminati in the first place. Because remember, they all went by pseudonym, so no one really knew who was a part mm. of it. But these men outed people's real names. So how did they know the real people's names if they weren't part of it? Wow. Oh. It's an inside job. It's an inside baby. job. Here we are thinking that it's all just hearsay. Uh-uh. But they are real. They've got their tentacles all over the world. This gives whole new meaning to the, the people that live at the center of the earth. Oh, I'd like to meet one of them. I don't. Stay where you are. <laughs> Leave me alone. It's probably so much warmer down there, though. True. Although you don't get enough vitamin D from the sunlight. I feel like I would just be sad. Do you not think you would be? I'm already sad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. It's a little give and take, a little bit here, a little bit there. You, you're at least warmer down there. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pros and cons. Pros um, and cons. <laughs> so basically from these writings by these two men, the world starts becoming terrified of the Illuminati. And in 1798, there was a full Illuminati scare which turned the conspiracy theory into like a leading topic of political debate, especially in the United States. And there were a lot of many like religious leaders and political leaders who kind of grasped on to this conspiracy. And there was one pastor, Jedediah Morse from Massachusetts, who named Thomas Jefferson, who at the time was a presidential candidate of the opposite political party. So he was, they were, they had different beliefs or they were on different sides. And he named Thomas Jefferson as the figurehead and chief of the American Illuminati. And people believed it. And people clung onto this conspiracy, fully believing that Thomas Jefferson was the member, the head of the Illuminati. And we... I mean, after watching Hamilton the Musical on Disney+, Plus, Thomas Jefferson did get himself into private rooms to have conversations <laughs> with exclusive parties. So is it that far-fetched? I mean, no, it's not. And also, I mean, I also can understand after the last eight years we've lived through, like how it, how easy it is for all these lies to spread and how easy it is for people to like grasp onto them and believe things that might not necessarily be true because... There are weird, random ways to back up anything you want in a, in a weird way now. Like, I just feel like it's easy to convince people of things. Anyway, so Jefferson was seen as the head of the Illuminati, and then he became president in 1801. And it just spread to the belief that the Illuminati now controls the government, because if Jefferson was the head of the Illuminati and became president, therefore he got his claws into the government and could, like, basically have the Illuminati run the world, the country. So after he became president, the Illuminati scare dissipated a bit, but many individuals still embrace the belief in the conspiracy that the Illuminati is a secret network of individuals who are trying to spread hidden knowledge and bring about sweeping cultural, social, and political change. Plus, there are many connections people have made throughout the years that continue to spread the belief and reinforce the belief that the Illuminati is still present and that it has a grasp on our society. So one of those conspiracies is the floating eye on the dollar bill over the pyramid, which we were just talking about at the beginning of this. And it's called the Eye of the Providence and was a symbol used by the by Freemasonry. And if you remember, how did the Illuminati at first initiate or recruit members? They infiltrated the Freemasonry. And so some people believe that they tried to like take over Freemasonry things or that they the two kind of combined forces and mm. that they're kind of one and the same now. So it's believed that the government added this eye because it's run by 
the Freemasonry meets the Illuminati duo. Gotcha. Okay. Adding to the conspiracy is that under the pyramid are the words New Order in Latin, and the Illuminati is often called the New World Order. But to just kind of disprove this theory, Franklin Roosevelt actually added this symbol onto the U.S. dollar in 1935, along with those words, because he liked the way it worked with his New Deal policies, because he'd, he'd come out with the New Deal. And that, like, the New Order makes sense with New Deal. And apparently the I goes back to, like, some Christian stuff. I don't know. There's all these things, but I'm kind of buying into it at this point, because I don't know. The lines connect. It's all making I sense I mean, here's me. the thing. They do connect if you take the right pathways. It's We're, like a little- I'm on that path. <laughs> I'm heading straight to, I don't know, what, what's the, I'm heading straight into Satan's arms because that's how people are connecting it now. Today, it's believed that the Illuminati is a group of the world's elite, leaders and celebrities joining forces for global domination. So which celebrities are reported as members? It's probably easier to say which ones are not <laughs> reported, but I'll just tell a few, few of the big stories and and then again, preface this by saying like, if you really want to get into this, it's going to be you warning. It's going to take up many days, hours, possibly mm-hmm. years of your life. But YouTube and Reddit are amazing for these resources. I watched I started watching one video about how like Beyonce and Jay-Z are in the Illuminati. And it was I realized <laughs> 30 minutes into it that it was a two hour long video And I was like, I need to stop. (laughs) So it's so hard to stop. They just there are people who spend so long dissecting every action of these people and finding a way to connect it to the the fact that they're part of the Illuminati. It's impressive. So let's start with the two who are um, believed to be the highest ranking members in the Illuminati. We've said their names before this episode. It is Beyonce and Jay-Z. They've both been the subject of conspiracy theories, and people have accused them of secretly brainwashing the public through their music videos and dance routines. For years, Jay-Z would make the triangle shape with his hands, which was supposed to represent a diamond, but again was misinterpreted as his way of saying, I'm in the Illuminati. (laughs) And then Beyonce also flashed that symbol at the Super Bowl, Mm. which was probably likely in support of Jay-Z, but then all of a sudden the stadium lost power and had like a massive power outage and everyone jumped to conclusions and was like, oh my gosh, Beyonce is so powerful that she could put her hands into a triangle and turn off all the power and absorb it into herself. A little suspicious. And and again, this is something with all the celebrities and, and people believing that they're part of the Illuminati, it feels like they, it's hard to make a distinction between Illuminati, which doesn't to me in the research I did relate to the devil by any means, but people connect celebrities if they have pentagrams in their videos or uh, have like devils or angels or anything like in that, mm-hmm. in that like mm-hmm. realm, which is like a weird, like, oh, are you saying they're, they sold their soul to the devil? Or are you saying that they're in the Illuminati? Cause to me, those are two very separate things, but maybe now it feels like the conspiracy theorists are connecting those two. Right. This one is crazy to me. People believe that Beyonce and Jay-Z's firstborn, Blue Ivy, that her name is actually that her name actually stands for her true purpose as a member of the Illuminati. So they believe Blue Ivy stands for born living under evil, Illuminati's very youngest. Oh, okay. I mean, you can turn anything into an acronym if you try. Anything. Anything. Okay, but this is still really fun to like read about and talk about. I know. <laughs> 
Uh, and then there's Kesha who uses pentagrams inverted crosses and the all seeing eye and triangles galore in her art and music videos. So people believe that she's part of the Illuminati. And in 2013, Rolling Stone asked if she was a member and she replied, it's so much worse than they think. I'm really the leader of the Illuminati. That's true. <laughs> and while to me reading that, it's very clear to me that she's joking. Others have fully embraced it and are like, Rolling Stone is part of it too. And they published this to make us think that she's not in it. But like, it also means that she's so mm -hmm. clearly in it. And it's just right. Yes, I guess. But if you know Kesha, like I do, which I don't know, I guess not everyone will. <laughs> we're really close because we're both in the Illuminati. Oh my God. Shoot. Cut that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no. I let it oh, loose. No. <laughs> not us. What? Um, Justin Bieber is also believed to be a shapeshifter, a power that was given to him by the Illuminati. Because there's a there's a video of Justin Bieber in court blinking and someone like zooms in and like thinks that he was blinking like an iguana. And so they're like, oh, my God, he's part iguana or he's a shapeshifter. <gasps> he's a he's part of the a Illuminati lizard person. He's a lizard person. Maybe that's oh, maybe. Here's my other thing. Other celebrities, I understand. Yes, they have a ton of fame. The rumors. Could they be true? maybe but justin bieber has gone through so much he's had so many mental struggles so many like horrible public facing incidents i don't know if the illuminati is really aiding too much to that success but there. he has money but he has money and that's all that yeah, the illuminati right. the money conspiracists fame and about. money yeah power right it does feel like they bleed into each other a little bit but maybe the illuminati is the work of the devil so i don't know kanye west is also a suspected member because he has strong ties to jay-z and beyonce and many of his songs have been dissected as Illuminati-empowered pieces of art. But, like, Kanye is like, what, just because I'm a successful black man in music, I'm part of the Illuminati? Which, fair argument. That's rude. Mm. He got a success. Right. Um, he also likes to point out that his first single was Jesus Walks, which is basically the antithesis of the Illuminati, if anyone actually understands what the Illuminati actually is. Taylor Swift, the Kardashians, Barack Obama, George H.W. Bush, Usain Bolt, Al Gore, the Pope, Bono, and like so many more celebrities are all rumored members of the Illuminati. And uh, you can add Corinne and I to that list after this episode blows up and we become famous. Invite us to your Illuminati parties. Uh, the conspiracies extend beyond celebrities and into government and so many wild other, I don't know, tentacle offshoots, who knows. But there were a few things that I thought were cool. There's this complex in North Dakota, and it's called the Safeguard Complex, and it's assumed to be used by the Illuminati because it has a very strange ship, shape and strange history. So the building was um, built in the 1970s to detect incoming missiles. It cost $500 million to build and is shaped like an unfinished pyramid, like the dollar bill. And mysteriously, the building was opened and only operated for one day. So it opened on October 1st, 1975, and then immediately closed the next day on October 2nd, 1975, and because Congress decided to end the program. So, of course, people were like, well, why would they spend $500 million to build this building and then immediately close it for mm. the day after they open it? So people think that it was actually built for the Illuminati, and the government kind of made this whole ploy of it being used for detecting missiles just to, like— back up why they were building it and now just the illuminati uses it and then and this is the last you know big conspiracy i'll talk about is um the denver international airport 
which is twice the size of Manhattan, New York, is filled with conspiracy theories, many of which lead back to or tied back to the Illuminati. So to start, the airport was $2 billion over budget, leading some people to believe that it has an underground structure that is either used for bunkers or as the headquarters for the world controlling group, the Illuminati. Um, And there's like people say that there are like lots of devil satanic artwork and things. There's like a bowl with red eyes and they think they're like statues that come to life or that have like cameras in their eyes and they're watching people. And it's basically like this like whole thing of mind, mind control and conspiracy and brain uh, brainwashing, which I'm all here for. Um, I could continue listing the hundreds of conspiracies and like the believe members, but we'd be here for a very long time. So whether you believe in the Illuminati or not, you cannot deny that it is one of the most popular conspiracies and most fun conspiracies out there. And I mean, we can also get into like, there's so much about like the psychology of conspiracy theories that we can get into, but I don't know. I'm into this. Well, here's my question. We keep everybody presumably knows about the Illuminati, has right. heard about them, and they're this secret society, they're underground. But my question is, what do they stand for? We keep hearing like world domination and, and just world and domination, whatever. But like, what what are they? What what is their platform? Like, are they are they trying I to go know. green? Like, I could get behind that. What are they trying to do? What are we dom? Like, how are we dominating? Yeah, please tell us. Tell us what you stand for. Well, that's the one thing that I never found. I mean, aside from aside from like the Bavarian Illuminati, which I feel like had, you know, they were following the Enlightenment. And they wanted to like, you know, have everyone get access to the like teachings of every every kind and not be limited to what was being pushed upon them. But everything I read about what the Illuminati is now was just so blanket statements of like world domination, take over your minds. And it's like, okay, but that's not actually a goal. Like if, I don't know. I just want to have a conversation with the Illuminati, sit down with them, be like, okay, tell me what you're about. Sell me, sell me on you. The other thing too is when the majority of what we get inquiries are are like misspelled or from, you know, Illuminati 00712 <laughs> at AOL.com. Like, how are we actually how are we actually supposed to know who the Illuminati is and who who we're hearing right. from? Here's my question. Have we already been approached? You know, when someone asks us a question that seems a little off or just like generally has a what seems to be a casual conversation in line for coffee with another person, are they actually gauging whether are they part of it engaging whether we would be a good recruit? It does make me wonder though, like the way that I've been approached that's obvious to me, like it's just, it to me, seems very blatantly scam-like. It's like, poor spelling. Pay $100 and you'll get back $50 million. Like, I just can't imagine that all these people who are on the suspected list of members of the Illuminati just fell for that. Anyway, that's the Illuminati. All right. Okay, I'm excited for okay, yours. Well, first, can I just say, here's another conspiracy theory that Sabrina and I didn't know we would have, but we already recorded this episode. And then yeah, yep. right before Sabrina started talking about the celebrities involved with the Illuminati, the audio just didn't record. It showed it recording, 
But when we went back, there was nothing. Well, okay. It wasn't even just talking about celebrities. It was also talking about you and I being a part of the Illuminati. And I was like, well, like, I won't say it, but like, we are, we're not. And then then it like kind of all cut out. So we, yeah, that whole part you just heard, re-recorded. Because the first time, sabotage. Sabotage. The Illuminati is coming after us. <laughs> How did they hack into our external microphones? Oh my god, because they hear us through our phones because they're running the government and they're like the heads of all this, the corporations in the world and so they're hacking our equipment. We've gone years without equipment issues. Yeah. In the beginning, so many issues. So many. That's up for debate what was happening. <laughs> but with, with this new setup, we have been so fine. So the fact that the one time we start talking about conspiracy theories and like hidden agendas and... And government involvement, <laughs> celebrities, blah, blah, blah. And this happens? I don't know. It's deleted. I don't know. I swear if this gets deleted again, I feel like we should have backup recorded like from our phones or something like that. We need to figure out something because if this doesn't record, I'm literally yeah. going to have a conniption. Going to cry. I'm not in this space. <laughs> We're just going to post an episode of us crying. Yeah. <laughs> it's just going to be ads and crying in between. Sponsored by. Sponsored by. Our tears. <laughs> Do you like salty? Kleenex. <laughs> Clear it up. <laughs> okay. All right. Take two. Take two. Let's do Here this. Here we go. Sabrina, you get to hear it again and maybe... I... Well, I'm excited because it, it was amazing. It was. And I'm glad that the world hopefully get gets to, to hear it. We get to hear it again. All right. Well... <laughs> As we mentioned earlier in the episode, we had previously covered Bennington Triangle. Sabrina was just out camping. Our friend Nikita was just out. Well, not camp. You weren't camping, but frolicking. frolicking I was frolicking. In nature. Nikita was just camping in Death Valley. There's a lot of spaces in the wilderness that have been on my mind recently. And I just keep thinking about the people who vanish in those spaces. People who vanish every day without a trace. So I pulled some stats for you, and then we're going to get into some conspiracies. Let's get there. So according to the FBI National Crime Information Center, there are 89,637 active missing persons cases in the United States as of the end of 2020. That's almost 90,000 people that we just, like, where are they? Just don't know. We don't know. Yeah. And, you know... I wonder what it dates back to, like what year that started. Oh, that's a that's a great question. I'm going to look into that. I mean, I'm it's still curious. a ton of people, but right. yeah. And, you know, too, I think it wouldn't be right for me to not say some of these cases, they have clues. They have a probable or confirmed theories of, of what happened behind them. You know, there's, you know, people who were taken by parents and, and they just aren't located. But we know exactly what happened to them, what contributed to them being missing. Mm-hmm. But there are cases that have absolutely no information, no clues at all as to what happened to these people. And so then I was started thinking about the national parks in the United States. And if you visit the national parks or state parks, you're one of many millions. In 2019, 327.5 million people visit, visited the United States national parks. That's so many. So many. My God, that's a huge amount. Huge. Wow. But out of that number, about 1,600 people went missing. And 1,600 people go missing every year from these parks. And while a good chunk of people are found, hundreds of people vanish without a trace. And for those 
terrifying. Ooh, I know. It makes you not want to go. I mean, if you do the, the math, the percentage-wise, you're like, okay, well, th- the chances are I'm not going to go missing. But what's so scary is when you learn about what happens to those that do go missing and just everything surrounding their disappearance. That makes you not want to risk it. Never. But for those who are Never again. missing, the odds of being found are not in their favor because for a long time there was actually no database at all to keep track of missing persons in parks, which is so wild. So records were essentially kept by park rangers, if kept at all, or sometimes, you know, like the the, the local government officials. But parks were essentially better equipped to tell you how many, like, bison they had roaming through their parks than how many people went missing. They just did not know. Is it because, like, no one knows who's like a who has authority over those areas? Yeah, there's a or lot of confusion. Just- there's a lot of discrepancies between different counties, jurisdictions, state versus national, and just general expectations of of logging this. And a lot of it was done, I think, pen and paper. So it was super easy to just essentially lose it, lose it, or like, you know, make the official like I'm logging this down, but then no one else knows about it. It's just in a in a file somewhere that if asked, it could be pulled possibly. But yeah, there was just a lot of discrepancies there. And there was no consistent practice. But then after 9-11, the Department of Interior built a database to track activity, to track activity managed by the National Park Service, the Bureau of Land Management, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So it's all these different groups, and you're like, oh, amazing. Everyone's being brought together. Yay, we finally have a database. Sounds great. Right? It does, does. but... But whenever we say something sounds great, it always means... It always means it's not. It's not. It's not. And that is exactly what happened. Problem not solved because reporting missing missing persons is actually entirely voluntary in 40 states. So only 10 states are actually required to report this when it happens. And then when you actually look what? into the database itself, about 14% of the several hundred incidents that could have been logged were actually entered into the system. So there's a huge gap between what should be recorded and what's actually being recorded. You know what's so upsetting about that is that like if it's optional to record it, then like what are they doing to actually investigate it? It makes me think it's optional to like look into. That's exact yeah. And if we go by that logic, then like absolute chaos. Then I think it's optional for me to appear in court. I think it's optional for me to serve jail time. Right. If people aren't going to look for me. So, but in these cases, people are just basically like, that's why it's so scary because the chances of being found are already difficult when you're in such a like Mm -hmm. vast wilderness with so much, so many, you know, cliffs and crevices and animals and whatnot. But then on top of that, for there to be no supporting systems in place to enable people to more quickly respond and look into your case. What are your chances? Right? It's, it's awful. Anyway, so these events, they're less trackable. Information is not being shared. But David Politis, who served 20 years as a police officer in San Jose, California, and who is known to me and by many others as the author of Missing 411, Mm -hmm. he was most interested originally in Bigfoot, and he founded the North American Bigfoot Search. But his interest started to expand when he was approached by two off-duty park rangers who came and told him of all these odd disappearances happening in the area and across all national parks. And at first, Dave, I'm going to call him Dave, because in all of his YouTube videos, he says, hey there, <laughs> hey gang, Dave Politis here. But your besties. We're, we're literally, I've watched so many of the videos. So. You two should go hunt for Bigfoot together. At this point, I feel like, you know, when you listen to podcasts and you feel like you're friends with the the podcasters, even yeah. though 
it's you're just listening to someone else's conversation i feel like i know dave like we're doing this together (laughs) this is my project too yeah but yeah so he originally was starting to think oh is there a link between my research in bigfoot cases and sightings and, and whatnot and these disappearances in these parks so he started looking into all of this and the rangers who had contacted him essentially told him that non-law enforcement employees like the park rangers are given just a little bit of info like they know that something's happening but they're not given all the info but the supervisors Mm. and those who are in law enforcement inside of the park service have growing concern with the sheer number of disappearances and the circumstances surrounding many of these cases so dave's like me too looking into this yeah one such case i'll give you many examples throughout this episode but one such case is that of dennis martin who was just six years old when he went missing while with his family at spence field in the great smoky mountains and dennis he was with his brother and he was with two other kids and they're young and they're like wouldn't it be so funny if we all go and hide and we jump out at the same time and we scare our family such a good prank right and when you're a little kid like that would be very exciting is that prank and it seems harmless, right? They're like literally just barely going into the tree line somewhat together and, and jumping out and, and scaring everybody. So they somewhat split up around this little area and then they jump out and they spook everybody. Woo, so fun. Until Dennis doesn't jump out. All three other kids jump out, but Dennis is missing. And just what? after they discovered that he was missing, which was moments, six miles away, there is another young boy who screams in fear because he sees a large bear-like man carrying something over his shoulder, carrying this thing that looked like a slumped child. So this little kid is so scared because he's basically seeing this little kid be kidnapped by this hairy man. Oh my gosh. <gasps> is it Bigfoot? It pro- um, Yes, it is. Here to confirm, well, not a conspiracy. Was- fact it's fact you know what's wild is that these park rangers happen to approach i mean unless the park rangers had a theory that it was bigfoot like they approached the guy who was studying bigfoot you know i mean yeah i assume that they approached him because he i think he had already you know somewhat made a name for himself in terms of like Mm -hmm. not pushing buttons but like getting the information and not being fearful of getting the information out there. And one thing that's really mm-hmm. great that I actually really admire about Dave and his work is that he takes away a lot of the insinu well, I guess some of its insinuations, but he takes away a lot of the like, here's what I think it is. Like I think it's Bigfoot. And he just provides the facts and connection possible connection lines. And it does lead mm. you to be like, oh, it must be this. But he doesn't actually say that. So a lot of his a lot of what he presents is it's just fact. It's data. And then you yourself oh, and your human mind are making all of these plausible connections and and theories. Wow. But yeah, so I'm assuming that they knew kind of generally what he was up to and, and were like, yo, let's let him know because he's the guy he, to yeah, go to. He's going to yeah. dig. And we can't because we're in, you know, it's the classic like some guy sees something at Area 51 and reports it and no one believes him. So, right, right. Yeah. But okay. So this little boy sees this what's believed to be Dennis being carried away by this hairy man six miles away from the scene where he had disappeared just moments before. So back at Spence Field, where he had disappeared, a search party is thrown together immediately, and it lasts until dark. And bloodhounds are brought in. They're brought in to search for Dennis and pick up his scent. And within a few days, a ton of other forces are brought in, including the FBI and the Green Berets. They find nothing. They find no footprints, no clothing, absolutely nothing, no clues at all as to what happened to Dennis. And he's six. So you would think that there'd be plenty of evidence as to where he wandered off to or what happened to him. But what's 
especially odd about this case is not just Dennis's disappearance, but actually the government's response to his disappearance. So I'm going to read you a big long quote because I, I think it's much better to just read the quote than to paraphrase. But essentially, mm-hmm. this uh, special forces member, Harold Cleveland, he was not involved in this case, but he just gave his own perspective on this case based on his experience in the special forces and his understanding of of how the government and all of these uh, different teams are supposed to respond to certain cases. Okay, mm-hmm. so here's the big long quote. Our special forces are never called to assist in civilian operations. That falls to the local National Guard and is approved by the state governor. The fact that they were armed as well is another huge no-no. During my command and every other mission I was aware of, we were not allowed by federal protocol to do either. Something is very wrong with this missing kid scenario. I've done some research on this case, both while on active duty and after my retirement. The inside facts of this case depict a frightening investigation. Bottom line is that searching started within a few minutes of the boy's disappearance and lasted three months with every resource imaginable being deployed. Don't even start with the, the terrain was difficult, holes and caves and cliffs and creeks, etc. Our special troops can find almost anything, anytime, and at any terrain. We have the highest technology available worldwide and easily the best training and real-world wartime and mission-specific experience that the normal civilian populace can scarcely imagine. After studying this case, the fact that no trace of the boy was ever found is (sighs) mind-boggling. The Green Berets that were tasked in this search were there for a specific reason. They were armed for a specific reason. I can't and won't say why because my oath documents won't allow it, but I will remind you of these facts. Nationwide, there have only been four occasions where the special forces were brought in on a civilian missing persons case. Two of these involved a possible armed perpetrator. The other two were this case and another similar to it about three years later and regionally nearby. This is out of thousands of missing cases since the early 60s when our special troops were born. The first time I heard this, I was shook. The second time I'm hearing it, I am even more shook. Yeah, it is chills. Because now I'm like analyzing it even more. And it's just like, okay, he said he was like, I will reiterate this, but I can't say more because of my oath. So what he does know something. Yeah, he does know something. Or what he was trying to say as much as he could without like exactly. betraying his oath. And like, what is his oath? Whether he knows something in terms of the facts of the actual case or just knows some of the logistics in terms of like what actually triggers a response, I don't know. Or does he know what's out there and like that, what they're afraid of out there? I don't know. But think about it. Like ever, just uh, not to not to diminish the seriousness uh, of a missing child, but there are so many missing children that disappear every day. And the fact that a three-month search with all of these, like, armed people and all of these resources were brought in makes you think, like, this – I've been recently watching all of the Marvel movies in Marvel Mm -hmm. Universe order, and this feels very like that, you know? Like, everybody's brought in because there's this monster from another planet, and basically everybody is trying to get their hand in protecting or investigating. But no one truly is I mean, so much of this – it's so interesting because I feel like so much government conspiracy comes from, like – some basis of truth like the government has kept stuff from us but it's like are they keeping it from us because they don't want us to know it like alien stuff 
But similarly, like the theory that they keep alien stuff from us is because like they know the chaos it will create when if if the world knows for a fact that aliens exist. It's like, are they trying to protect us? And what are they trying to protect us from? Yeah. I don't need protection. No, you're making me think of the podcast Wind of Change. It's basically about how the theory is that the CIA had actually written Wind of Change and had this other really well-known rock band produce it. Oh, right. And it it contributed to like the the Berlin Wall coming down and and civilian Mm. unrest and and this like huge change across uh, Eastern Europe. So that's the theory. And you're like, whoa. But then when you actually listen to it, listen to the podcast there's so many examples they give of like here's a theory that people were very conspiracy theory-esque and then here's the year where it was confirmed to be true and i mean there's a lot of that reason Ah! i believe in like everything now because i know nothing is too outside of the normal realm of reality think of how many things we were like that could never happen that's so disgusting and then in the past couple years we learned that it it is actually in fact very true so you can really believe whatever you want. But this guy, this this uh, Harold Cleveland, who was a Special Forces member, he's like, hey, something is going on. We just don't know what. And I'm thinking, like you, that maybe it was Bigfoot, like this bear man scene with a kid yeah. slung over its shoulder. That probably has something to do with it. So, of course, Dave Politis is on it. And this leads him to launch the Can-Am Missing Project. Basically, all these cases, plus these park rangers coming to him, he's like, all right, we need to do something to catalog the cases, all these disappearances, and, you know, sometimes recoveries of people in parks and wild land across the U.S., people who are disappearing under these mysterious Mm -hmm. circumstances. So he creates Can-Am Missing Project. And he believes that the Park Service does actually know what is happening, or at least has an idea And that what they don't want to do is to scare people away from visiting these parks. Exactly. They know how many people are missing. They're keeping it under wraps, depending on, you know, I'm not saying like park rangers are like, oh, I know exactly who went missing. But someone within the that that field, there's someone up top who does have have knowledge of what's going on, but they're not saying. And here's a little bit of proof to to show you that they're keeping things under wrap. Dave, he sent hundreds of inquiries and requests to the Freedom of Information Act to try to get answers, but he never got any luck. He basically was given like a, we don't have any info, blah, 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 blah. And then not only did Dave do this, but there's been so many people, so many journalists who have interviewed him that are also like, huh, that's odd. And then they write into the Freedom of Information Act requesting the info and get denied similarly. There's there's something happening. And Dave, he continues his research extensively. He has written and self-published multiple books on the disappearances. He's dedicated over 7,000 hours to this research, along with everything else he's Whoa. doing. So this is like years of his life. Uh, That's so impressive. So impressive. And here we are just committing hours to making a podcast and goofing off. I know. And... Dave's just showing us up. And then we're going to get some nice credit with, with like, cool story when really I'm just taking everything Dave has dedicated <laughs> his life's work to and telling you a very condensed 45-minute version of it. We're helping spread his word. Yes. Yes. Be careful out wow. there. Wow. Are we joining Dave's cult? I think we are. Conspiracy theory. <laughs> Dave hired us to we're... do this episode. <laughs> I mean, most most cults do have, like, women on, like who are running it behind the scenes, so... 
Dave, where your women. This is the perfect way to do it. It's just, <laughs> this is why I was always like, you know, the CIA should recruit us because what a good cover. We're just podcasters. <laughs> we don't know what we don't. We just sit across. We're, so we're spies? We're spies. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> And then we could talk about it. Like we could openly say it and it would sound like a joke. Because no one will believe right? us. It's the perfect scenario. <laughs> Are you listening to us? Anyway, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dave's research and, and basically what he's found. So okay. he's discovered that there are, according to his research and, and his analysis of data, there are 59 clusters across the U.S. and southern Canada where people go missing. And the clusters are created when four cases occur in the same area. So he just, if there's four cases in the same geographical area, he just marks that as like a, a little hotspot, a little cluster. And major hotspots are Yosemite, Crater Lake, Yellowstone, the Grand Canyon, and Rocky Mountain National Parks. Many cases also have unique factors of disappearances as well, such as dogs who are unable to track scents or are spooked and unable to perform their duties. They just like refuse to to continue because they're so scared of whatever's happening. Disappearances also happen in late afternoon, which if we think back to when we were talking about the Bennington Triangle, all of them were around like 4 p.m. It was in the afternoon, late afternoon. Which is so much scarier. Because it's... Because you feel safe in the middle of the day. Exactly. Your guard is down to some some level if not completely and starting and starting a search also during the daytime makes you think that it would be easier to find someone and like so someone really vanishing without a trace in day seems it's just so much more unsettling i agree it makes you not trust your eyes and the narrative given in in front of you something is off something that we can't explain or fathom is happening because it doesn't make logical sense right also when victims are found they're often discovered in an area that had already been thoroughly searched which we also saw in the bennington triangle case sometimes with pieces of clothing missing especially shoes shoes are often removed and sometimes clothing is found and dave said when the clothing is found like left behind it's almost as if someone has melted into their clothes like it's just kind of whoa like they disintegrated (gasps) into space well what a like strange description it makes me think alien abduction right like they're beaming something down that's that's turning you into these just particles that can move (sighs) into wherever space they're trying to take you also in the rare cases that bodies are discovered not only are these there are these abnormalities with like you know clothing removal and whatnot but autopsies are usually inconclusive they have no idea how this person passed away which is just absolutely wild you would think it would be very clear if if someone passes in the in the wilderness there's a few things you would think poison food a animal attack right blunt force trauma dehydration i feel like those are the norms exposure to the elements drowning you know it's things that are pretty clear i would think in an autopsy but so many are inconclusive Additionally, berries are often a commonality between cases. In his research, in Dave's research, he found that people disappear or people that disappear are often found in the middle of berry bushes. They go missing while picking berries or some are found while eating berries. And it's it's strange because Interesting. you're like, okay, well, is this like, you know, is this like hallucinations? Like you're, yeah, poison. yeah, you're being poisoned or, or some sort of like hallucinative property of these berries and you're wandering off and and later found or whatever but the other thing that i was thinking about is like berries are a food source right so depending on what beings are out there right being by a berry bush might might put you in in a bad place to end up being abducted by whatever is 
is searching out for for this nourishment. Right. When children are found, it's often an implausible distance away from their disappearance point. So for example, like the earlier example I gave you, that kid was seen six miles away later, although he was never recovered after that first sighting by the other boy, which is very sad. Right. But another example is one toddler who had been found 12 miles, which was two mountain ranges and many, many streams away from where he'd disappeared just 11 hours later. So 11 hours later, and he's navigated two mountain ranges and passed through many, many Whoa. streams on his own? I think not. He was a toddler. That's, yeah. Uh, there are other similarities between certain disappearances, especially children, like boulder fields being nearby and also terrible weather following the disappearances, making the search all that much more difficult, even if it's daylight. And additionally, children with disabilities are overrepresented in those of of children that go missing. So on the note of children being an impossible distance away, I want to give another good example of of what many of these cases look like. So in 1938, four-year-old Alfred Beelharts was in the Rocky Mountain National Park with his family and his parents were watching him. He was only a few feet away from him and they were right there out in the open. But then suddenly, poof, he was gone out of their sight they had no idea where he was and he'd just been feet from them and just vanished into the air there was a six mile search conducted and they never found this little kid this little kid alfred though dogs traced his scent 500 feet uphill from where he'd gone missing but then they got really nervous and really spooked and the dogs refused to go any further up the mountain oh my gosh and then what's even more odd is that six miles away from where alfred had just gone missing uh, two hikers saw the boy. They identified him what? after learning about his disappearance. At that same moment, like just moments later, they saw the boy in this really difficult and dangerous rock outcropping. And he seemed to, to be in this daze. He was really upset. And as they're watching this kid, like over in this like really difficult terrain, they said that they, it looked like he was, he was suddenly jerked backwards by an <gasps> unseen what? force. What? <gasps> Yes. Oh. And this was just a few minutes after he disappeared. And what's even wilder is that the search party who went to that rock outcropping, they had to use specialized equipment to reach that point. So it was so extremely difficult to get to. It was not something that a four-year-old could could ever climb to. No ordinary person without this equipment could get to that rock outcropping. It's so bewildering. And and it's this is such a hard thing to talk about too because you have to keep in mind like these are – a four-year-old boy going missing is horrible and traumatic and devastating for everyone involved especially the family and that boy and but it's also so fascinating and really hard not to like conspire about what the possibilities are and Mm -hmm. and we've talked about how bigfoot is an inter what's it called interdimensional dimensional creature so like is he time hopping through these like glitches and i don't know yeah that's a that's a really good point because I was thinking very much like like speed in which something can move is beyond what we can understand or that, right. you know, a, a being could basically wear some sort of invisibility cloak and, and it looked like a force being sucking this person back. But really, it's just this invisible creature pulling someone. Right. But 
I like what you're bringing up, these like portals, this ability to open up this space, these like little wormholes. And do they function on their own? Do they suck people in? Like, is it unintentional? Like, is a being actually opening this portal? Or does the portal just exist and people accidentally step into them and are thrown all over the place? And you're basically caught into this like jumper-like loop. I was thinking Bigfoot is is creating them because especially with like the fact that these dogs that are trained to smell scent can't find it anymore and it just like disappears. I don't know. I mean, it's not outside of believability that there are portals you just with all the energy and like the vortexes yeah i mean i believe it people lose time all the time time. in these places and it's like this hike was two miles how did you disappear for four and dogs are also so sensitive so many animals are so sensitive like animals know when a storm is coming and humans can't necessarily in our own natural body predict that or feel that so it makes me wonder too if you know the bigfoot thing is i think something that makes sense with the dog's reaction but on the flip side are they just sensitive to the vibrations to the energy change and they just know not to go somewhere because there's a portal portal nearby right oh anyway this is all so sad how many people have gone missing so i want to talk about a few survivor stories Not that it will cheer you up that much because it's quite disturbing what these people have gone through. But one case is that of John Doe. So John Doe is a a pseudonym because for his privacy, his name was never published. But he was three years old and he was out with his family when he abruptly disappeared near a fly fishing river. A search party is formed immediately. They're like, oh my God, fearing the worst. Like, did he wander into the river? Did he drown? What happened to him? Did someone kidnap him? And then five hours later, they find him. He was standing in the middle of a grove of trees, and he was confused. Were they buried trees? No, no. Well, at least in oh. <laughs> at least in what I saw, they, there was no defining uh, type of tree or bush. But what what he told, what little John told the investigators, baffled everybody because he said that he saw a woman who looked just like his grandmother, and he thought it was his grandmother. He followed her to the mountain, up into the mountain. Then they went into this room, and he said that he thought, from his description at least, the investigators dubbed it to be some sort of underground bunker of sorts, because when little John was mm-hmm. recalling this, he said that he could see the entrance, and he knew he knew that it was daylight outside, because he could see the light outside. But the inside of this room, there were a bunch of motionless robots that looked like people, and that there were these Ooh. dusty weapons and purses leaning against the wall. And then he said at some point the woman is, you know, she's like getting up on a ladder or like stepping up onto something and the light behind her head shows that she's actually, she's like glowing. She's beginning to sparkle almost like a hologram. And then in this moment, this little three-year-old realizes it's not his grandma. So he, he's obviously distraught. He's concerned and and upset because he's actually now knowing that he's with a stranger away from his family. And this woman, she lays down a sticky piece of paper on the floor and she asks him to poop on it. And she also has him lay down so that she can examine his tummy. And he's scared. And he, (gasps) I think he did lay down, but he said he did not, he wouldn't poop. And I, there's not extreme detail because he's three years old as to what happened when he was being, you know, examined. But, oh my God. It does, yeah, it's a bit concerning. And so the woman, because he's not pooping, and he's scared, she becomes frustrated. And she tells him that he's from outer space. He was planted in his mother's womb and he needs to (gasps) comply. 
And he he didn't. He was scared. And so this woman eventually is like, okay, just go wait in the trees until you're found. And that's exactly what he did. So that's why he was just standing right there in the middle of the trees, just waiting all confused and scared when they found him. Whoa. Wild tale, right? Sounds sounds like, okay, this is crazy. I mean, but also like it's so specific that I, – and I know like children have crazy imaginations, but the specificity of all of it is almost hard to, to discredit. True. And you know what we didn't talk about last time we recorded this part of the podcast before we were sabotaged <laughs> um, that I'm just now thinking about is the line of dusty guns and purses make me makes me think that other people were taken to that same cave and their belongings essentially collected and they mm-hmm. were never returned. Yes. It also kind of reminds me of like when you get to work, you hang your stuff up or when you get home, you hang your stuff up. Like it is almost like because he said robotic like humans but what if they're all similar to like what his grandma was but they all like can like morph into something different or they're aliens but they're like that's where they work and they put their stuff down creepy and then what's even creepier when i'm gonna tell you and this might make sense as to why this person looked like his grandma and this gives even more credit to john's story so once john is discovered and they realize what happened to him john's grandmother is like oh my god Because she and her husband, John's grandpa, had been in the same area, seemed like general area, camping within that year prior to John's disappearance. Mm -hmm. And she had woken up in the middle of the night, like late at night in the darkness, being dragged out of her tent. And then she doesn't remember (gasps) anything at all. So she's dragged out and then black, no memory. And then she finally wakes up again and she's face down half outside of the tent in the dirt and it's daylight now, so a bunch of time has passed. And the base of her neck hurts, and then she's feeling really ill. She's got this horrible sick feeling. So her husband, obviously, she wakes him up and is like, help me. And he examines her, and at the sight of her pain in the base of her neck are these two small holes, like prong marks. Oh. And the only thing she could remember that was off that day before was that at night, before they'd gone to bed, before she was dragged out of the tent, they, with the flashlight, they caught these red eyes in the flashlight, and they just had assumed it was like a deer with the reflection just showing red. But that was the only thing that they thought was out of the ordinary or could have been out of the ordinary for for them that night. It's so creepy. I just – I have so many questions because it's like, did they um, clone her or did – or is she an alien as well? And like it runs in the family and multiple people in that family have been planted by aliens or, like, was she genetically studied and then that made them plant the grandson as a alien child? Right. I don't know. There's so many. I feel like there's so many deep, deep webs I could string along with this. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Because, yeah, I think just, like, from an, a basic observation or basic theory, I would think, oh, they took her identity. They were able to copy her DNA in, right. in some sort of form to present themselves as a familiar being to this child which means that the child was marked early in advance to basically go missing Mm -hmm. like months and months before they had planned to abduct john but then you make a good point like john if he was what the woman said he was which was this alien that was implanted into his mother's womb right is that the case for everybody in his family like do they just not know because like they wouldn't know you're not who who knows i i would 
I would love to be an alien child. Remember when I thought I was an alien for a minute because 23andMe couldn't collect my DNA? <laughs> they were like inconclusive the first time I yes. sent it in. And I was like, yes. I knew something was off. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out I'm not. Okay. Another case of a child that was had disappeared and then was found is that of Catherine Van Alst. She was eight years old when she went missing in Devil's Den Dam in Arkansas back in 1946. And she was playing with her brothers. They were near some boulders, boulders, rocks. And then boom, she's gone. And a search party is formed. Just like in all these other events, like immediately people are looking for her. And this search went on for days. And on the sixth day, 20 to 30 miles away by foot, and it was something like seven seven air miles if you'd flown a direct path and not taken a train Mm -hmm. and then 600 feet higher in elevation they find her she's barefoot she's in her swimsuit she's just in a cave and when they come up to her she goes here i am oh that's so chilling it is like oh it's very creepy like she was expecting them kind of but it wasn't it wasn't like in a playful like ha ha i was hiding it was like just like deadpan i am so Catherine says that oh. she remembers sleeping in a warm, grassy field the very first night and that she was drinking water from a clean pool and she was eating berries. But she doesn't remember anything berries. after that. So she was gone six days and she only really remembers that first day. And what she was saying about the first day was a little odd too, like warm, grassy fields. Just everything was just slightly off from what they – what I guess would make the most sense – but then aside from all the bug bites over her body, she was in fine shape. Nothing happened, nothing to indicate that she had walked 20 to 30 miles over all of this terrain. Especially if she was barefoot, yes. like her feet would be torn nope. apart. Perfect. Bare feet were totally fine. She was fine. Bug bites, that's it. Whoa. No scuffs, no injuries, no beat up feet. 20 plus miles for this eight-year-old child. And in how many days? Uh, she was found on the sixth day after her disappearance Jeez. so while Catherine could not remember the majority of her almost week-long disappearance i want to tell you a few quotes from other kids who have been found and maybe have similar things happen to them as Catherine, so we can kind of like you know make some assumptions fill in the blank for what happened to her so one of the odd things that was said by a six-year-old lillian who went missing in maine during a very cloudy cloudy 46-hour period was she said the sun shined all the time while I was in the woods, which is a little odd and reminds me a bit of the like warm grassy fields that Catherine was living in. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there was another child, a three-year-old Michigan child who was taken from her father's lumber yard and later found on a log in a river. And she said, a wolf man gave me water and berries and took off my hat. Bigfoot. And then another child who was taken as a toddler and was actually, there were witnesses that saw a bear-like creature running away with this kid, said, a mama bear took me, made me a shelter, and I slept with her babies. Oh. And when they found this child, there was a, like, makeshift shelter. Like, it it looked like there was, you know, like a man-made, almost like brush. It's very jungle book. I slept slept with her babies. babies. Which I'm like, were they Bigfoot babies? Or were they other little kids that were taken? Oh, oh my God. That is so unsettling. I know. Oh. I know. It gives me chills. Because when you're that little, like, everybody's – everyone else is a baby, too. Like, that's – Yeah. Everybody has their own babies. And you're a baby. 
So there are a lot of stories from pretty young children, and a lot of them are, are odd like this, and a lot of kids go missing. And they have so many similarities, but but one thing is that, you know, people do have a tendency to dismiss children's memories as these fantastical and imaginative tales. And then when adults right. come back with similar tales, equally strange, people assume mental illness, hallucinations... But still, I do want to leave you with one survivor account of an adult so that we have that comparison. So Stephen Kubaki, he went missing in 1978. He was skiing near Lake Michigan in an area known as the Great Lakes Triangle, which is actually just like a lot of the other triangles where there's a ton of disappearances. And in this one, the Great Lakes Triangle, it's a lot of boats and planes that go missing. And Stephen, when when he doesn't show to whatever he's he's due to appear at or or check in with someone, people realize something happened to him. He's missing. So a search party begins. Right. And rescuers find his skis and his poles on the beach. And then they follow his footprints up to the lake. And then they suddenly just stop. I think they go a, a bit of distance over the parts of the frozen lake and then nothing. And so people are like, oh, my God. The lake was frozen, I too. believe so. At least, at least part of it, like the shallower areas. So that makes it probably hard to search, too. Like, they could think that he exactly, fell through or something like that. Exactly. And planes were flying overhead, and the planes were like, yeah, the footprints just stop. And other people who had gone through were like, the footprints just stop. And so they were – I think everybody was kind of assuming, like, he he likely just fell through and drowned or fell mm. through and wandered off somewhere and died of hypothermia. Right. So they search a while longer. They fly over the area. But the only clues that were ever found were his abandoned ski equipment and the tracks to, to nowhere. Fifteen months after Stephen's disappearance, on May 5th, 1979, 15 months, he wakes up. He finds himself in a meadow wearing clothing that did not belong to him. And he spots a bag laying next to him and he opens it and there's a bunch of maps that he doesn't know about. They're not his. Just a ton of maps of places. Nothing belonged to him. Everything was strange. He couldn't remember anything from the past 15 months. And his body felt like he had just been on a long-distance run as well. And he just had no explanation. He just woke up in this field. He just woke up after 15 months of just no memory. I'm shook. And the meadow was 40 miles away from his father's house. So you're like, okay, that makes, I guess, a little bit of sense. He's like kind of nearby home still. But it, it doesn't make sense because while he woke up 40 miles away from his father's house, he was actually 700 miles away from where he disappeared in Lake Michigan. <gasps> Huge distance. And it it reminds me of that show, The 4400. If we're thinking there's like alien or like something supernatural involved mm. in this, like where all of a sudden all these people just go missing and like everyone just lives for years thinking that they're dead or just gone. And then... All of a sudden, they all they, reappear. They reappear. Yeah. I haven't seen 4400, but is – or whatever. Is that what it's called? 4400? I think it's 4400. Yeah. Do they do they reappear and not know that time has passed? Like, are they in the same clothes and everything? Yeah, they don't know. I don't know if they're in the same clothes, but they don't know how much time has passed. Mm-hmm. Then they all have, like, superpowers that they start to, like, oh, cool. realize that they have. Well, because one of the things I was thinking with, with this guy, too, with Steven, is that – you know, he wakes up with all different clothes and all these maps. So immediately my mind goes like Guardians of the Galaxy, like Journey to the Center of the <laughs> Earth. Like he's he's on a quest. And there there is – I can't remember the name of it. But there's this one essentially like mental illness that people dissociate from their own personality and forget every piece of like context as to who they are and what their life is. Oh. And it does – 
contribute to or I guess like is the reason for some people's disappearances out there and you know they'll Mm -hmm. eventually be found and and treated but for him for Stephen he finds his way to his dad's house he knocks on the door his dad's astonished to see him and I think he gets checked out and he's no psychological problems he just doesn't know what happened he doesn't remember anything and it really freaked him out he was pretty unwilling to talk about it and even Dave Politis he had reached out to Stephen but Stephen was like no thanks conspiracy wise it makes me almost think that he was cloned and it took 15 months for the aliens to teach this new clone like who he was Oh, Sabrina, you just freaked me out so much. This is like that. Um. Oh God, what's that show? It was so weird. With oh, I remember the, it was on uh, Netflix. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Why can't I remember his name? Um, He's like one of the. It's the actor that never ages. Living with yourself. It's um. Paul, what's his name? Paul, Paul Rudd. Rudd. Paul Rudd. Yes. We're basically like he does go to get cloned, but what mess? He they mess up and don't murder him, and so it's basically him and his clone living together and like trying to take over, retake over their own life. Oh my gosh! Oh yeah. So yeah, maybe I don't know, but basically Stephen went on to to live his life. He four years later had gotten his master's in linguistics, and then his PhD in clinical psychology, which I believe he had been you know working towards studying those things prior. And what happened? to him remains a mystery. And these cases and the thousands of other cases of missing persons in national parks and wild land have too many similarities and too many odd and unexplainable events. And there are quite a few theories that have risen. You know, we've already mentioned aliens and Bigfoot. And, and, you know, quite possibly all of these theories or all of these conspiracies could be correct because with the thousands of people who have gone missing, I think it to be quite possible that there is more than one paranormal uh, being or occurrence at play here, right? Yeah. There could be many. Yeah. So I want to just quickly go through some of these conspiracies. So the first is okay. is what we've, you know, kind of been alluding to this whole time, which is Bigfoot. It's the original theory that led David Politis to this case. Bigfoot or Big Feets, they're capturing these people, especially young children. And in, in some cases, the children are taken care of and later found. And in other cases, they're never seen again. Another theory is alien abductions. So people vanishing without a trace People are like, oh, well, seemingly plucked from the sky. So you think aliens above. Uh, And it's believed that in these wooded areas, in these national parks, possibly because there are so many occurrences with like rock bed and, and boulders nearby, that something about this is more attractive to alien beings or like helps them in some way to to come down and and visit us or the vortexes the energy yes exactly and we talked so much about ley lines before and it's i wonder if there's something to do with like the minerals and and whatnot for whatever whatever aliens are using to get around but then another theory is like you know these are more unpopulated areas it's a perfect spot to pick someone up if you're a ufo trying to zip zip grab someone you're not going to be seen uh, another theory is some type of interdimensional being, which honestly could be either the alien or or Bigfoot theory as well. But people, you know, being able to take on the shape of someone else, a familiar family member, or possibly no shape at all and being this invisible force dragging someone back and snatching someone from their place with no witnesses. Could it be that there's something that has these these sort of powers of invisibility? Any of these could account for missing time for the treacherous terrain and far distances in which people are later found for strange markings and and missing clothing but beyond these theories 
there lies one more theory, one a little less paranormal, a little bit more grounded in, in our reality, but possibly, I think, a little more sinister. The cave system in the United States aligns quite nicely to the locations of missing people. So the thought is, could people be wandering oh. into these caves and, and getting lost? Yes. But at the rate in which people are vanishing, it makes a little more sense that there's actually something working from within the cave, something that's hunting these people down, bringing them into the deep depth, darkness, these layers, and doing what they want with them. And more recently, if you have social media, if you have like TikTok, if you've just been reading some, you know, like gossip, celebrity news, whatever weird news, you probably have seen that there have been a, a bit of discussion around what quote unquote feral people and cannibals living in, in these really wooded areas. So people who frequent national parks or who live on, on the property or like these really outdoorsy properties near where people go and like hike and camp and whatnot, have so many people have come out and claimed to to hear people crying in the middle of the night, like screams, families pleading for their lives and and these terrible things happening and they're, they're hearing it. They're not necessarily seeing it, but the sound is traveling across the canyons and, and mountains and they're hearing these things. And so all these people who live nearby are like, yeah, it's absolutely plausible that there's there's like basically man on man something happening in these in these woods. There are accounts from the Appalachian Mountains, from the, the Smoky Mountains, everywhere. Okay, my only my only qualm with this theory is that in almost every case you talked about, granted, I'm sure there's so many more, the the there was no trace of the missing person, mm -hmm. like scent or clothing or anything. And if there's cannibals in this area, one, I feel like they're probably not the most cleanly people. I, I imagine they're leaving a lot of traces. Yes, and you, you're right. And I'll talk a little bit about this too. But going off of, of your comments too, I think the other thing is that in the other cases, people are vanishing without a trace, which means there's no there's no sound either, right? Like if you're face-to-face -face with a, a right. potential perpetrator, an attacker, whether it be a, a mountain lion or a person, you're likely going to make a little scuffle and, and make some noise and leave some evidence yeah. behind. So yes, you're right. It does not map to a lot of what we just talked about. But it might account for some of the missing people and some of the witnesses who've heard really disturbing things and reported it, but never heard uh, what happened after. Like there was no conclusion mm -hmm. to their reports. But essentially, people are hearing these like blood curdling screams and notifying park rangers and park rangers are, are doing what they can. But in some cases, people have been straight up told by officials like, yeah, there are people who basically live without law in this area and they attack people and are likely, we believe, the source of some of these missing people. But it's really kept under wraps wow. because the, the national parks industry is a billion-dollar industry, and they don't want to scare people away from, from visiting. There have been claims by, by a couple people a, a little bit older in, in age now because it was from a few decades ago, but people who said that a few decades ago when tourism was like really popping and it was blowing up to basically visit all of these parks and becoming more of an attraction, that the, some of these people were hired out by whoever the government the national what? parks whatever hired out to go in and hunt down these attackers these quote feral people in some cases people who were said to have been hired and 
again, this is all hearsay, like there's no official reports, said that they did find human remains and they did find some like cannibalistic communities who had attacked these people. And sometimes there are survivors who say that they had been attacked by naked men, but they had escaped or that they could feel and sense that they were being followed for a while, uh, but didn't actually end up seeing anybody, but just like knew that they were being like basically followed and hunted. Oh my gosh, that's so creepy. So creepy. But it also leads me to ask, okay, so I just watched Wrong Turn. It's a movie on Amazon Prime, basically Hmm. about this group of like the classic horror movie, like a group of young adults who go hiking in the Appalachian on the Appalachian Trail, and one by one, they're sort of like murdered and picked off by this tribe who had broken away from society 150 years ago and are just like killing people who enter onto their land and don't abide by like their laws and their rules and their order. So part of me is like, yeah, I think this is what people are alluding to, this like weird cannibalistic, torturous society that Mm. just plays by their own rules. I I would be okay with this theory to some extent, if it wasn't like they were hiding behind a tree to jump out and scare a family and then the kid never jumped out, you know? It's True. not like they're in a place that, you know, I feel like a lot of these happen on like hiking trails mm-hmm. or like in places that are publicly walked upon. If it is if it is human, which it doesn't really sound like it is because most evidence leads to the conclusion that it's not. If it was, it's very yeah. like Deliverance Hills Have Eyes-esque. And yeah. what makes more sense is actually that it's not people, right? It is something way more paranormal that we don't understand. Yep. Yep. Well, Ugh. we don't know. But what we do know is that 1,600 people go missing from state parks each year, hundreds of which are never recovered. And the few of those that do come out of those few, some of them have very strange tales to tell. So if you stay, Ooh. if you decide to venture off into the wilderness, stay close to the people who you are with. Do not go off the marked path and pray that nothing has made you its target. The thing that makes me even more unsettled about this whole thing is that a lot of the experiences maybe, except for the guy who you said disappeared for 15 months, were with other people. He was the only one that was like alone. And that makes me scared because I always say like, stick with your buddies and you'll be Mm -hmm. fine. But it's not necessarily true. It's not true. Yeah, because so many of the kids, too, it's like the parents are like, we were watching our child, and not only were we watching our child, our child was two feet away from us, so we didn't have to have our eyes, like, staring at our child the whole time. Two feet, and then This is passes. why, okay, have an idea. Leash If kids? you go on a hike, leash your, no, leash yourself to everyone in your group. Oh, yes. Because then if someone gets sucked into something, then you all go. And that, that exists. Or, or we're just going to hear, like, the next diet love pass like group goes missing i guess there's no right answer but if you're really scared right now just think the chance that you're going to go missing is is slim to none and there's just as much of a chance of something happening maybe this is going to make everybody it's worse it's more paranoia i was going to say it could happen anywhere but now (laughs) i'm just afraid of life entirely i have a listener story and with conspiracies i mean paranormal in general i feel like is just a conspiracy well, our podcast is. I feel like we can cons- we make up conspiracies <laughs> about the paranormal all the time. But so we're cryptids. They're kind of like, are they real or are they not? So this is from Josie. And it's called Freaky Things Near Skinwalker Ranch. Ooh, okay. Hey, Corinne and Sabrina. I love the show. I just re-listened to the Skinwalker Ranch episode and I have some sort of 
I have some stories sort of relating to that. It is just a minefield of crazy things. My best friend's family used to live in a small town in northern Utah, pretty close to Skinwalker Ranch. They moved to the city but still owned their ranch, so we go up there a lot. My friend and I would spend weeks there tending to the horses and the fields. It's one of my favorite places in the world, but it's creepy AF. I rarely have nightmares, but I do when I'm there. And it's always about something trying to get inside, through the windows, or through the cellar with a well in it, or basically anything that can open to the outside. Whatever it is, it wants in. When I described my dream to my friend, she told me she's had similar dreams all growing up. We've heard footsteps inside, even though it was just the two of us and the dog in the same room. Sometimes the footsteps would stop in the room we're in, and the dog would just bark angrily in the air. Unexplainable things happen there all the time. Headlight-sized lights shoot out of the ground, and similar orbs of light float through the fields. There are tons of UFOs, but they're not necessarily alien-like. This is probably the freakiest thing, but I just want to describe my friend really quickly. She is extremely logical and pretty dang serious, so she's not the type of person to lie or exaggerate to make something seem more interesting. This topic is something she would never joke about. So, one day, she saw a massive, weird-looking wolf with disgusting reddish fur in their field, walking unnervingly slow. It went behind a tree, but it never came out. She ran out there to look at the footprints, but there was nothing in the dirt, and footprints are pretty easy to find in the dirt there. She said her cousin saw the same thing that day, and he refused to leave the house afterwards. One of the Skinwalker Ranch stories told out there says the wolf thing was tame, but it wasn't a dog, and they can pet it, but it was really disgusting. One day, it attacked a calf, trying to kill it, so the dad shot it with a shotgun at close range, and the flesh just fell off. And the creature walked away. And they said the chunk of flesh that fell off smelled like rotting meat, even though it was fresh. Well, thank you for reading this email, and thank you for all the spooky content you bring us year-round. Josie. Oh my, I can't even... Okay, so many thoughts. And this is actually changing a little bit of what I thought Skinwalkers to be. Because before, just just as a, a quick reminder, Skinwalkers are essentially these these like people that are turned cannibalistic creature this is making me think less of like a a human and more of skinwalkers being this alien creature that we can't understand because the fact that skin can just drip off of it and just detach and not affect it at all is making me think that the creature itself and just stick with me for a minute but the the creature itself is more like fart from rick and morty where it's just this like gaseous being or being that we can't see and it just can take on whatever appearance or like whatever earthly materials it needs to protect itself and and have some sort of visual appearance but that actually like slicing at it or doing anything to its physical body doesn't do anything to it at all because it doesn't it is not of flesh it is gaseous or or just the little pixelated being. I don't know. Or similarly, like, I like what you're saying because it's like it's collecting something else to wear upon itself. Like skinwalkers, maybe it really is something wearing the skin of something else. Like the tokolosh. Because they say skinwalkers are humans who can, like, shapeshift into these wolves. 
But what if they're not shape-shifting? What if they're wearing the skin of something dead, you know? <sighs> oh, it's all just so gross. And just the smell of it all, I think. I'm also curious what the non-alien-like UFOs are. Josie, you need to tell yes, us. Yes, please do. We need to know. What does that mean? Like, I'm, I'm having a hard time yeah. picturing what it is, what the interaction with the land and people is like. I would love, okay, because Skinwalker Ranch is like a huge area. I would love, similar to like how Josie stays at her friend's place that's like right near Skinwalker Ranch, I would be down to stay somewhere up there. Josie, can we come to your friend's ranch, basically, is what I'm asking, and stay the weekend and just see the vibes because you know how like certain places like when I was in Sedona like it has just this feeling based on the energy there like you just get a vibe from it and I'm curious what it's like there I feel you too and the other thing with this is that generally unless you open the door like if you're if you're inside locked in you're generally safe it's a little black-eyed kids-esque with skinwalkers right just wanting to get in but it's not like you're entirely out in the open. So I I might come with you. Okay, but my only question is, are you prone to sleepwalking? Um, yes, I don't sleepwalk often. But in my adult life, I probably have two or three times. And as a child, I did Because I'm very nervous that if you're having this dream about something, letting it, let wanting to come in, what if you start sleepwalking and let it in? Okay, this is this is a situation that I will tie myself to you as we're sleeping. Tie yourself? Yeah, that's way better than my myself. I was like, chain me to the bed. But then what if like a fire happens? And I can't tell you to give me like a, a dummy key to use to release myself because I'm very high functioning. As you're sleepwalking? So I would just be able to use it in my sleep and get no. out. So yeah, just just chain yourself to, to me. Put me on a leash. You have to wear bells. To your you have to wear bells too. Yeah. So if you start moving. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure some people do that for their kid. I know people definitely put bells on the on like doors yeah. to wake up when people are trying to leave. Yeah. Well, all right. This is from our listener, Josh. Hi, Corinne and Sabrina. I love, love, love your podcast. I've always been fascinated and open to the paranormal world. And before I dig into the stories, I am a, quote, normal male <laughs> in my mid-40s who grew up in an old town 30 minutes east of St. Paul named Stillwater, Minnesota, right on the St. Croix River. Founded in 1848, before Minnesota was recognized as a state, this place is the poster child for historical places with an old prison and native battle sites, just to name a few. If you've seen the movies Beautiful Girls and Grumpier Old Men, that is my hometown. I'll try to keep this as brief as I can. I'm an adopted Korean male who's seen a ghost and a UFO, not at the same time, but that would be something, (laughs) always with my adopted mom. I find it weird that it's only the two of us who've seen things, but maybe it's because nobody else was home at the time. Anyway, in 1985, when I was in fifth grade, we just moved to Stillwater and lived north of town on a 10-acre hobby farm. One night near dusk, my mom was working in the garden in front of me while I was shooting baskets on the pavement. Our long gravel driveway was in front of my mom, and I noticed that someone was coming up the driveway. I asked my mom who it was, since we hadn't met anyone yet, and she thought it was just the neighbor girl coming to say hi. As she approached us, I noticed that she was dressed in period clothing, wearing a long blue dress, and had long hair. She was carrying books attached by a strap and brown boots. She looked about my age. The thing is, I could see right through her. And she was not leaving any footprints in the gravel. She was hovering over it. 
She kept staring straight ahead and passed right by us as if we weren't even there, maybe a residual ghost, and she walked past the barn into the backfield and then disappeared. My mom and I looked at each other and I said, did you? And she said, did you? (laughs) And with that, I took off running into the house, locking my mom inside. (laughs) There was an old settlement in the backfield near the river and across the street from our house was an old Arcola schoolhouse from the 1800s. She must have just been walking home. But from then on, I would turn on every light in the house and grab my dad's machete whenever I was home. At least she was like benign. It just feels like a residual energy you know well because worst case scenario is she looks straight ahead and you're just like observing her walk by in shock and then right as she's right next to you just about to pass you she stops and turns and looks at you okay well let's create some nightmares corinne (laughs) (laughs) but still like wow what a long long experience yeah multi-second like maybe possibly even a minute plus of a A lot of processing happening in the moment absolutely now for the ufo Again, I have only seen this with my mom for some reason. One summer night of my senior year in high school, I was waiting for my girlfriend to get off work and to come over. It was around 8 p.m. My mom was outside on the patio with a dog sitting in the chair just looking up at the stars, and she told me to go grab the binoculars and check out what was on the horizon of the Wisconsin side of the river. I looked, and right above the horizon was what looked like a small hot air balloon rising up from the ground. I just thought it was a weather balloon because I could see it being propelled by flames up into the balloon itself. But as we continued to watch, my mom still outside and me inside looking at the big bay windows with the binoculars, the balloon turns into a solid green colored triangle. The green was a piercing color of green, like a go on the stoplight. It quickly rose into the clear sky and then it broke into three smaller green triangles. My jaw dropped and the three triangles then proceeded to do these weird patterns in the sky, zipping from one end of the sky to the other in seconds. And this went on for 20 minutes. And then, without warning, it reformed into the solid green triangle and then back into the balloon shape and then it disappeared. No. Then my girlfriend Julie arrived to see us hysterically recounting the story. Finally, I was a camp director with the YMCA for 20 years, and the last camp I worked at was in, was west of Minneapolis on Lake Independence. It was a smaller camp, only 40 acres, but it had a deep history of being built on native land, so I was told. One of the cabins, Cabin 13, I heard wild stories about in particular, from former and current staff. And remember, after seeing what I saw growing up, I totally believed it. During the summer camp, I was told by a counselor that... A girl with long, dark hair would be seen standing at the foot of campers' beds at night. Eep. Ooh. A couple of incidents that piqued my memory. In the fall and spring camp was a conference center. There was a local private school that had held retreats there for over 40 years, and my last year there, I was hosting them and making sure that all of their cabins were good to go. One of their security guards accompanied them to the camp and was staying alone in cabin 13. The next morning at breakfast, I see him. He's white as a ghost, and he did not look like he had slept. I asked if he was okay, and he said, Josh, I need you to believe what I'm about to tell you. Last night, when I was falling asleep, I saw two dark shadows cross the room in front of me. I then heard in a low, slow whisper, get out, (gasps) and heard scratches on the furnace next to me. I am a 60-year-old man who's seen a lot of things, but I slept with the lights on last night. (laughs) After breakfast, I went and I looked at the furnace, and there were three long scratches in the newly replaced furnace metal plate. Eep. Again. 
In the winter months at camp, living there alone, I had my nine-year-old yellow lab Indy there with me, thank God. It would freak me out when we would walk at night near cabin 13. One night, when I was the only one there, we were on a walk near the summer office with cabin 13 directly to my right, about 30 feet away, when the hair on Indy's back went straight up and he's staring now aggressively at cabin 13. I turn, I look, I see the lights of the cabin flicker on, off, on, and then off. And I know that all of the doors of the building are locked and that there are no footprints in the snow on the path. So I freak out, I haul my ass, nearly beating my dog back (laughs) to my own house. There are so many more other stories I could tell you, but I'll save them for another time. Thank you for creating such a safe space for all of us to share our stories. Keep up the great work and I'll see you on the other side. Josh. Where is this camp? And how do I actively avoid it and never send my future children there? Because that sounds terrifying. I can tell you where this camp is. Because he said it's Lake Independence. Lake Independence. (gasps) West of Minneapolis. I wonder if Nick's ever been there because that's kind of near where he lives or grew up. Right. That cabin. I mean, and then of course it's cabin 13. I know. I know. And it sounds like there's so many experiences that people have in there. Like the get out and like the scratching seems so different than the little girl standing at the edge of the bed. Unless the little girl is like a demon that's, you know, just representing right, itself. Yeah. Of it. Exactly. I know. I'm very curious. But regardless, it sounds like no matter what the experience or level of activity, it's still it's still it's not like gentle no right like it's it's meant to be spooky it's meant to scare you first the girl that was walking down the driveway and then the ufo was like these are multi-minute experiences 20 minutes of this thing the ufo one scares me because it's like 20 minutes of it like darting and like splitting into three makes me wonder how many people were abducted in that 20 minutes so many or if we want to spin it into a nice version you know how when you're on vacation, you can just like book an excursion. You, you can go kayaking. What if from another planet, this is an excursion <laughs> and you can you can travel to Earth and basically get to go in your own little dune buggy uh, spaceship uh-huh. and just go around and zip around as much as you want and drive the spaceship around Earth because nothing is powerful <laughs> enough to stop you on Earth. I love the idea. That sounds very fun. Let's start packaging. Yeah. Let's Can we be the alien adventure group oh i think travel agent it, this is us. yeah this is what we're into we can show them we will be the the earth liaison yeah i can show them the world i can show you the world i also really like the, th- the thought of aliens just like zipping around in an obvious spaceship but being like it's fine they'll never know because we're under the disguise of a weather balloon <laughs> like, like we can see the other version too Ugh. Well, I think this episode has proven that we love topics of all variations. So basically, Mm -hmm. this is a call to action for all of you. Please send us any and all stories that you have or any conspiracy theories you have. Or if you're part of the Illuminati, I want to hear what your experience is and if it's legit (laughs) and if we should sign up and how much money you make for real. Um, that's cl- yeah. We need some transparency. Yeah, there. yeah. Let us know. Um, and yeah, email us everything to two girls one ghost at podcast. Whoa, what? Podcast. Two girls one ghost podcast at gmail dot com. Uh, you can also rate and review us on iTunes. You can blah, blah, tell other people about us. We're not like the Illuminati. We're not underground. Tell We're above ground. Please. 
there are other things social media yeah, you know the know. spiel um thank you to brooke foster and eric foster at upfire digital for editing our podcast we're so appreciative of you of you and we will see you, you on the other side, side. very spooky